0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Welcome to this special live edition of the Seneca Podcast coming to you from our next China conference at the China Institute in downtown Manhattan. Make some noise, New York. This is all done in the interest of embarrassing our guest, Uh, anyway, and and Jeremy. I am Kaiser Guo, joined, of course, by Jeremy Goldhorn, editor-in-chief of SupChina, who I haven't seen in person since, what, like late 2019, I think it was, late... Almost two years now. Um, Jeremy has so far avoided being subpoenaed by the January 6th committee, and I ask that if anyone in the audience is actually here to serve him, that you please wait until we are done with this recording, and then he will gladly accompany you in or out of handcuffs. Um, I want to also say that Jeremy, on his behalf, he deeply regrets his role in the insurrection. (laughs) Uh, meanwhile <laughs> greet the people before your days are through. Thank
2: you. Uh, it's good to have a chance to speak to the public before my incarceration. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyway,
1: <laughs> I cannot tell you how thrilled we are to uh, both of us really to have with us our guest Peter Hessler uh, right here in the flesh on stage. Peter <laughs>
2: Peter is, of course, a correspondent for The New Yorker and a prolific author. He is the recipient of the MacArthur Fellowship, that one for geniuses, and until earlier this year was teaching journalism at the University of Sichuan in Chengdu. His spare and elegant prose, his keen powers of observation, and his dedication to the craft have earned him a reputation as the preeminent foreign chronicler of China. Pete, I'm so glad you could join us here for this. I think uh, the last time I saw you was, in fact, in Beijing in Zhior about 15 years ago, so this has been a long time coming.
0: Yeah, it's been a long time. No, thanks so much for having me, and thanks
1: to the China Institute and to SubChina. Um, it's great to be here. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, Peter is, of course, the author of, to date, five fantastic books. River Town, Oracle Bones, Country Driving, Strange Stones, and The Buried, an archaeology of the Egyptian Revolution.
2: And to make us feel at home as residents of Beijing during the economic boom, there is, of course, some renovation going on immediately (laughs) above our heads. (laughs) uh, That
1: that familiar sound. And this seems always to curse us. Wherever we go, there's renovation. Uh, Anyway, uh, for those of you who haven't read the latest one, The Buried, you're probably imagining, hey, this is a book about Egypt, right? It doesn't really have anything to do with China. Think again. It's unbelievably interesting. It, it, it's so, it, it told me so much about uh, China. So that's actually what I want to get into first uh, and, and talk a little bit about that that particular book. So after many years in China from the mid-1990s when you were in the Peace Corps, right, uh, in, in, in uh, China, y- you and your wife, Leslie T. Chang, the writer Leslie Chang, uh, left in 2007, I believe it was, and then he spent some time stateside, and then went to Cairo in the midst of the Tahrir Square uprising, right? So it was in October. and Yeah, we moved there in October of 2011. Right. Yeah, right. I, I want to start with the buried because it, for somebody like me reading it it, it, it added this perspective that I think is lost on a lot of, of, of people who, uh, who, who look at China. And this is, this is the astonishing extent of revolutionary change that has uh, happened in, in China. I think for people, and I have to confess that I would include myself here, I've tended to focus more on the, the, the 40 years or 40-plus years of reform and opening and have thought about the first 30 years as sort of just an in, in abyss of horribleness, just have uh, focused only on sort of the missteps. It's sort of told the narrative is, is about... Um, you know, anti-rightist campaign, and the great leap forward, and the cultural revolution. And what, what really woke me up in your book was how you looked at how different Egypt was because it hadn't undergone a revolution of that proportion. So can you talk a little bit about, about that and how it might have changed your own thinking on China?
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons that we
1: decided to go to
0: Egypt is we wanted another perspective other than what we had as Americans and as people who had lived in China. Um, and the, we wanted to go to the Middle East because, you know, this was an important part of the of the world. We actually didn't move there because of the revolution. That just happened to happen as we were making our plans to go. And so we followed through and went there. But it was fascinating, of course, to be in the middle of this political event and, of course, something I had never witnessed in China. But it does make you think a lot about the idea of revolution, the idea of change. Um, you, know, you realize also most of what we think of as revolutions turn out to be coups, you know, which is basically what happened in Egypt. It wasn't something that really turned out to be revolutionary in terms of the change, especially in terms of society. But there were so many almost one-to-one comparisons of experiences in China. To give you an example, you know, one of my projects in China was often to try to look at things at the lowest level, at the grassroots level, and I tried to do the same thing in Egypt. And toward the end, I followed an election in a village in Upper Egypt in the South. Um, and it was really fascinating because there was a clan in that village that had always been powerful. And during the National Democratic Party, the NDP days, they had a candidate who was aligned with the NDP. Um, and he would win the local elections and go to the parliament in, in Cairo. After the revolution, they had a candidate who was seen as sort of close to the Muslim Brotherhood and the Islamists. And he won the election and went to the parliament. Then after the coup in 2013 and the, the Islamists were thrown out, and the CC and, and sort of the military was back in charge, that, you know, they'd align themselves immediately with them. And each, this you could watch this clan would take whatever was happening at the top and just sort of use it to their own devices and, and the, the local power structure remained stable. And I compared that like in, when we lived outside of Beijing when I had a village there, um, when I had a home in a village there, um, the local party secretary was a woman who was an outsider. She wasn't from the local clan. She had married into the clan, but not to a very powerful person, but it sort of showed you the power of the party, it went all the way down to that lowest level where they decided the person for this village is not going to be from the clan, it's not even going to be a man. And when she was there, you sort of understood why she was in charge. She was a really strong, charismatic, she was somewhat corrupt, but also quite <laughs> capable. Um, and you could see that somehow they had the structures that would choose who they wanted there. And they were in control, even at that lowest level. So it made me realize how deep these changes had been in China and how how what we were witnessing in Egypt was often just kind of right on the surface. Peter, a
2: device you've used to wonderful effect in your books, especially in Rivertown and The Buried, which are, you know, your introduction to your your first time in China and in Egypt, respectively, is learning language, language acquisition. And I, I think it works very well to bring the reader along. I mean, Rivertown particularly, made sense to me since I also was 94, 95, first in China learning Chinese, but it works very well in the buried. Can you talk about the importance to you of learning a language as somebody who's going to then write about the place you're living in? Yeah,
0: I mean, it's, it's, it is fundamental. It's, all, it's also just enjoyable. Yesterday, actually, when I came in from the airport, my cab driver was from the Fayoum in Egypt, so an Egyptian cab driver, and we were talking about the brotherhood, and he's like, Kedabin, which is this word you always heard, the liars, they're liars, you know, and um, it's, it's just great to be able to, you know, you never know when you're going to use one of these languages. Um, you know, I actually, I grew up without learning languages. I grew up in Missouri. And when I was a small child, my family had a year of sabbatical in Sweden, and I sort of learned a little bit of that, but that was it. So I felt this was really missing in my education, and one of the reasons I joined the Peace Corps was because of language. And it became so fundamental to the experience in the Peace Corps because if you didn't learn Chinese, you really were lonely you know, in those towns. I mean, there were two foreigners there. If you didn't speak Chinese, you were just so limited. Um, So a lot of us worked really hard at it. And I tried to describe that process in Rivertown. And in the the course of writing about it, I realized how important it was to me. And so when when we went to Cairo, that was also one of our priorities. I think when we talk about identity, I, when I talk to students in America, I often mention this, we have I, you know, very strong ideas about your ethnic identity, your gender, all these things, that, they shape your perspective and who you are, very important to think about these. I think it's also important to think about your linguistic identity. Um, what are the languages that go through your head? That also shapes who you are. But one of the nice things about that is it's, 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 it's not permanent. You know, it doesn't lead to essentialism. You, know, you can learn a new language. And, and, and you can change who you are and change your viewpoint. And so that that was always one of my priorities in these places.
1: How important do you think it is for co- foreign correspondents right now working in a foreign environment to be able to speak the local language? And I mean, I, I noticed that uh, these days, a lot of the young reporters are very, very good. They have, they're very steeped in Chinese.
0: Yeah, I mean, they, they, they put our, our era to shame, you know? And I mean, that's a great, I think China, though, is unusual. China, e- even when we were there, I mean, I, it always impressed me as a place where people Really engage with the language, wanted to learn it. Um, that's pretty unusual. It wasn't the case in Cairo. You know, most of the foreign correspondents my age and Leslie's age were not working at Arabic the way that we were, and, and I think that's that's sort of a shame. Um, and and it, but it, it is a special thing about being in China. Yeah.
1: So you have over the years laid the foundations for what I assume is going to be your true magnum opus. You have followed a cohort of yeah you know, across. Well, I mean, you've the makings of a longitudinal study across a quarter century—you've known these students that you taught in Fuling uh, back in the in the 90s, and you've tracked their lives. You've stayed in touch with over 100 of them. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, I understand that your forthcoming piece in the New Yorker is going to be about them and about you know the, the 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 disparate paths their lives have traced. What can you tell us about this? Can you give us a sneak preview, and maybe give us a couple of anecdotes of people who you know ended up on the editing, the cutting room floor and, and, and weren't in your story.
0: Yeah, I mean, this was, I think even actually when we were there in fooling, I arrived there in 1996, you could really sense that this was an important generation. You ha- even had that feeling, even as a kid, I was only 27 years old, um, because they were all from the countryside. You know, these kids, more than 80% of them by 99, more than 90% of them had grown up in, in, in villages, almost always either the first or second person from the village to go to college. Um, Good percentage of them had illiterate parents, but now they were college students, you know, and there was that incredible moment because when you go to the university, your hukou becomes a city hukou. You know, you are a city person. Um, And, you know, so we were, but we were watching the beginning of that process. They still looked like rural kids. They still thought like rural kids, Um, but they were going in a different direction and, you know, after I was very fortunate because after I left I went back to Beijing pretty quickly um, and once I was in Beijing I had take I'd written down the addresses of all of these kids and so so I would write a letter every six months to all my students, and in those days, I mean, I was address, you know, writing the addresses by, by hand in Chinese, which took me forever, um, but that was the start of staying in touch with them. Um, and eventually, once people got phones and email, of course, it got easier, and they read my writing, and you know, this became part of our sort of conversation in our, in our relationship. So I've stayed in touch with them to the point where I do you know, surveys with, with, with them or ask questions about different aspects of their lives. It's you know one thing that's really amazing to me is how many of them are still in education, probably more than ninety percent are wow. still teaching, um, and I mean if you took a group of, training teachers in some country and a quarter century later, that's still what they're doing, um, that's that that's that's unusual. So, you know that's that that's very striking to me. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean I chalk that up in part to the observer effect. Uh, the you know they you were an influence on their lives, right? I mean. Look, um you know they they count themselves as like this, you know, we few, we proud and the the rest of them can they hold their lives cheaply or whatever. What <laughs> if they weren't, they weren't uh, there on, on uh, Jinjin's day, under, what yeah, is it? No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean
0: it's, it, it reflects, you know, that they're pretty decent jobs actually, Persons, you yeah. know, and 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 also that education is 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 respected in China. It's incredibly flawed and they're very They're very critical, actually, of the system, you know, in a lot of
1: ways. So, but, you know, where have they gone? I mean, where have some of them headed off to, and what have they done with their lives? Uh, You know,
0: most of them are in Sichuan and Chongqing, but there are, you know, there's people in Shanghai and Zhejiang. I've got a bunch of students in Tibet.
1: Actually, wow.
0: um, like the kid who played Hamlet that I wrote about in River Town. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he he's been in Tibet for 20 years.
1: And do they hang on to those kooky names that they picked when in the 90s, when the English names that they came up? Yeah,
0: from? yeah. No, most of them have the same names. Yeah, because they
1: they had, of course had named themselves, you know. So
0: you would you would have a boy named Daisy, you know, and this uh, and and you know all, all sorts
1: of of crazy names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a devil in working.
2: I think we both knew Billboard, who worked in advertising. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, there was there, – there yeah. they're
0: also like cruel – I remember there was a, somebody, one of the Peace Corps people got a class of kids who had been taught by some sadist, and they all of them were named after cigarette brands. <laughs> <laughs> it was like Winston. Marlboro. <laughs> right. Yeah, just Barbara was awful. <laughs> American spirits.
2: So um, it's sort of related um, – you know, uh, you, Pete, and Kaiser, and me are of a certain age, the age where Kaiser and I were on some show with a guest who was an adult that I thought was kind of our age. And he said, oh, you know, you were in Tang Dynasty, right, to, to Kaiser. My, my mom was a fan of your band when she was a girl. <laughs> so anyway, well, we have a certain perspective, but you have an even greater perspective on the question of the generational change, I think, because of uh, your, your, your students who are now also educators. What can you say about generational change in China? How different are the young people... Of today, from right, I because mean, you were teaching you
1: freshman comp at Sichuan University, right? So you had college students from yeah side of a twenty-five year divide. Yeah, no.
0: So I, you know, we we went back. I was in. I moved back to Chengdu in 2019, which was 21 years after I left Ful- Fuling. Um, and actually, I never taught during that time. And so I went back and taught again. And one of my one of the reasons for doing this was I was interested. And of course, seeing how the region had changed, that's why I wanted to be in Sichuan. I wanted to be, you know, to have contact with my students from Fuling. But I was also curious what it's like to be at a university now and what what young Chinese people seem like. Um, and so the, that idea of generations was, like, you know, just incredibly vivid. I mean, one of my Fuling students had a son at Chuanda when I was there. You know, he was in the Chinese department. Um, you know, and I met him and talked with him. And so I, I, I did think about this a lot. And I mean, it's so. So different. I mean, I wrote one of my pieces how the size was one thing that jumped out at me, right? Because now suddenly these kids are taller than me. Um, and I would, sh- in all the classes, I would show them a picture of me with my fooling students. And I'm, like, towering over them, like five, nine and a half, you know. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, why have I gotten so much shorter? You know, and they would all laugh. And so you would see things like that, which in a way is it's very visceral. You know, th- this is a physical change. You see what the, you know, reduction of poverty is no longer an abstract thing. And these, most of the kids I taught were from the cities. Um, and the other huge part of this generation is the, you know, what, what we call the one-child policy, right? The which in most of those urban areas, limited families. And most of my students from Fuling had only one child. And now we realize that's kind of a window that's probably, it's probably gonna be different. It's a very special generation. And the kids I was teaching were those single children. Um, so I thought about this a lot. I mean, I think you often have a lot of ideas of what it means to be an only child, and we, you hear about the little emperors and, and this sort of thing. Um, I was sort of struck. They were. I would. They, these were not spoiled kids. Um, they were urban kids. They were often prosperous, um, but even the ones that came from money, they weren't spoiled. You know, I was. I was sort of surprised by how hard they work. I mean, I. In some ways, in China, I, st- I felt like that all the time. It's like, you guys are still doing this. Like, when are you going to back off? You know, it's just like, if anything, it's gotten more intense. You know, like you bring your car into, at a car, and you get to the oil change, and you're getting, like, on your WeChat, like, a picture of every stage of what there's. somebody's taking a picture when he's opening this valve and doing that, and it's like, I don't need the 15 <laughs> photographs documenting my oil change. But it's, everybody's, like, in this, and then my kids were the same way. I would have them do reporting. So but I taught journalism, and so... They went off and did reporting projects, and they got to choose what they were doing. And I mean, I had a kid, I a member of freshman, he goes to McDonald's at like 6 in the evening and stays there until 7 in the morning to see who's at McDonald's all night long. And it's, <laughs> he writes about the prostitutes and the drunk guys, and there's kind of like migrant-type laborers who are cold who go in there to sleep, and the delivery guys, really fascinating. But I mean, this kid was willing to, and I found that in general, they were really good reporters. They were so hard working. Um, so that, that, that certainly impressed me. Um, I think the other big difference is just awareness. And in, you know, in, in fooling days, people, of course, they weren't aware of much of the outside world, uh, but they also didn't understand how a lot of things worked in China in that, in that generation. And I felt like the kids now, um, you know, of course, Tuanda is a higher level university, but they were quite aware. They were very savvy. They, they already knew the system quite well. And it often made me wonder. I mean, these guys who know the system and are already so knowledgeable—does that mean that when they get bigger, they're going to change the system, or does it just mean that they get better at going along with the system? You know. And I used to ask them that, and there was there was no uh, you know there was no conclusion, right? I mean, I, I think you can sort of see it both ways.
1: So, Pete, I think if you talk to anyone in China who's even glancingly familiar with your writing. Uh, you'll hear a lot of praise. And in, often it'll come from people who I know who are quite prickly about the way that China is portrayed in English-language media. Uh, but when it comes to you, uh, they're, they're, you know, they're very warm, and they feel, I mean, I suppose in today's parlance they would say they feel seen by you. They feel like there's a, a real uh, you know, empathy that in your writing. And I, I, I think that's, that's in evidence just from you know, your remarks right now. I don't think there are many people I know, there are some uh, certainly a handful, but who are who can write about the quintessential weirdness of China today, um, some of the the, the weird shit that happens in China, and do it without ever tipping into mean spiritedness. I mean that is a real talent. You can still get a good chuckle out of the reader, but it's never at the expense of you know the Chinese people. Um, now, but you can trust that with how you are received in Egypt by people who are in the same you know in analogous socioeconomics. Class, right? I, I don't. I whenever I meet an Egyptian intellectual, I'll, I'll bring your name up, and then instantly I'm greeted with, "Oh, that guy!" I roll, I roll. And to me, it's the same approach. I, it seems to, to me the exact same approach to your writing. What gives? What's the, the reason for
0: it? <laughs> I You know, I, I could just be better at China than at Egypt. Um, but you know, I, I think there's also there isn't really the same socioeconomic group. Um, it's very different mm. because elite Egyptians and educated Egyptians are often quite, the class divides in Egypt are really broad. And this reflects a country that has a much longer and sort of deeper colonial history than anything China could imagine, Um, to the point where many elites are not educated in Arabic. Right, It's very common to meet an elite Egyptian who really doesn't read or write Arabic very well. Mm -hmm. Um, And even middle class people often, or even lower middle, like the guy that ran the the kiosk out in front of my house, his kids were being educated in English. so there's this kind of gap, and I felt like often the very elite, very westernized Egyptians, there was a sort of insecurity about their own culture, but there was also a real snobbishness about um, the lower classes and, I, and a condescension. I mean, the thing that really outraged people there was I wrote an article about my garbage man in, uh, in, uh, in Cairo because he would go around, and he's, you know, he's, he's an illiterate man, like more than 25% of the, of the population in Egypt, um, and he would collect people's garbage. And, and the first time, actually, I noticed him was because he came to me with, like, Chinese Viagra. It was like he had found, <laughs> he had found like, Chinese Viagra um, in the garbage. And, and, he, and he, know, he knew I spoke Chinese, which I didn't understand how he already knew this. Um, but he came to me with this thing. What is this? How do you use it? And, and then he would, and he, periodically he would come to me with all kinds of uh, stuff. Uh, let me show you. Yeah. <laughs> I, so, you know, I asked him, I was like, well, where'd you get this? He's like, oh, from a guy who died. And I was thinking, <laughs> <laughs> I was like did, he take the, did, like, did he take the medicine and die? And he's like, oh, no, no, he was old, he was old. You know? Anyway, but so I started, to, he would come to me with anything kind of foreign that he found in the garbage, and I'm just getting this incredible window into my neighbors <laughs> and all the people around. And I realized this guy really, he knows a lot, like he's really, and he was also incredibly intelligent, like he was, even though he's on ed, never went to a day of school, very sharp, and he w- he was just funny and interesting guy. And my, Leslie and I both got a kick out of him, and I ended up writing a story about him. But all these, and the story, of course, was fact checked, as it always in, in the New Yorker with an Arabic speaker. Um, it was after it was published, I had somebody translate it and read it to him, um, and he was perfectly happy with it. But all kinds of people were outraged on his behalf, and uh, and so that was a you know they just thought that I had taken advantage of him um, because this guy is a poor illiterate person. He, you know, and you wrote about him. And as far as I'm concerned, he has agency. He knew what I was doing. I mean, I, there, one of the people who complained was a neighbor who actually worked for a prominent American NGO. And I mentioned to him, I said, you know, she's really upset about this story. And he's like, you know, they only pay me 30 pounds every month. For picking up their garbage and every time they do it they have me sign this little form he's like i know why they do that because they're expensing that to their company and they still only pay me 30 pounds he was like and this is the person who was outraged on his behalf but to me that was sort of uh, very telling
1: so i mean rarefied elites performing outrage and indignation on behalf of a subaltern with whom they have no Personal connection—that's something completely unfamiliar and alien to me. I can't imagine that.
0: Um,
1: so I think that's part of it. There is
0: this class difference. There's also just a general confidence difference. Like I feel like actually, if my if Rivertown had been published in Chinese in 2001, when it was published in English, I don't think the reaction would have been as positive. Um, it came out 10 years later, and time moves very fast in China, um, and people were a little bit nostalgic about that period, they were also more confident, you know. Um, the Chinese were very hard on Pearl S. Buck, who I think really knew what she was, she knew, you know, was a brilliant speaker of Chinese and really knew, and I think The Good Earth is a really good book. And Chinese intellectuals at that time were just withering about her. Um, some of it was probably sexism, um, but some of it was also just a lack of confidence. So I think China's kind of in a different place
2: in terms of, uh, how they see themselves. But Pete, I think there's also something about your writing that worked in China at that time because I remember before I moved to China, the books that I read I mean, if I think of a typical um, sort of work of travel writing or journalism, I think of Colin Thuberon or Paul Theroux, and, uh, like Ride the Iron Rooster. And I mean, China, Chinese people were very much the other. They were very exotic and strange, and either because they were Chinese or because they were communist. And, uh, you know, River Town was the first book I read that I was like, oh, those are the Chinese. Chinese people I know that are actually <laughs> kind of you know regular human beings and um, whereas I mean the Egyptians and the uh, Arab world has been written about badly and well for hundreds of years I think perhaps with more complexity than China does that make any sense I don't know I I
0: mean yeah, I mean, I, I think also the when you talk about that moment that, that we were in China, it was also a moment when it was really possible to get to know people on this level, right? I mean, I think for the earlier generation, it was very hard. You couldn't go to a place like Fuling and, and sort of get to know people at this level um, where, you know, where you're going to their weddings and, and, and getting to know
2: their children and sort of staying in touch with them the way I've
0: done. So it was, I think it was a unique moment. You know?
2: Can we talk about entrepreneurs? I know we're kind of running out of time, but I really want to ask you, Pete, about entrepreneurs, because we have literary types here. We also have business people. Let's see if we can like, please them both. I know that you, like me, have a genuine appreciation for the ingenuity and the work ethic of, of China's entre- entrepreneurs. You've written about many of them, and I always find that delightful. Uh, people like the grassroots guys in your piece on the Chinese merchants uh, selling to Americans via Amazon.
1: That was amazing. That was such a great piece. Really fun
2: yeah. piece. You also wrote about a much more successful entrepreneur, Law Li, who, along with his brothers, started the whole Western-style cake industry in China, wedding cakes and birth cakes and who now operates a ski resort you visited can you talk about him a little bit and you know what is it that your stories about these entrepreneurs what, what did they say about China
0: yeah he, he was amazing I mean we went to their resort this, some of the Olympic events are going to be held around there this is up in Hebei um, and I didn't really know anything about him and I went to interview him but you know we live in close to skiing in Colorado we live close to Telluride and have friends in Aspen you're kind of used to what the ski mogul is like the guy that you know, was in this industry and I, I sat down with Loli and he's like very handsome very charismatic as a wearing. he always dresses in all white that was like his trademark color um, and he's just like you know chain smoking the whole time which is what you would not do in Aspen or Telluride um, and it was really but it was just amazing his whole story because he had grown up in the you know asbestos town Shirmian right in in Sichuan, uh, which the name is literally asbestos <laughs> and his parents worked in the asbestos mine and somehow this so he could again. get out the
1: smoke you, you lived in Leadville Colorado yeah <laughs>
0: So, you know, he had this background and he had built this empire and then he got interested in skiing and he was just losing a fortune. He just loved it and he was trying to build this resort. And we would go to the, somebody had told me, oh, you know, he's often there cleaning the dining, dining hall. And I was like, that's not, that's not going to be true, right? I'm sure he did it for, and they showed me a film of him doing this. Um, and, but sure enough, every day that we went there to the, at lunch at the ski resort, he was somewhere bussing tables in um, all white wearing his outfit and I mean sometimes people knew him and they are kind of going up and saying hi but a lot of times you'd see him off in a corner and nobody's paying any attention to him at all and he's just like wiping the floor it's just unbelievable so I mean I like there is this sort of humility to the, at least to that generation of Chinese entrepreneurs I, it may be fading I'm not sure but I, the people that you talk about that we kind of grew up with you would see these guys like on the ground level but you also just there's that kind of quickness that is really fun when you're watching like when you talk about the guy the Amazon guy um, that I wrote about in The New Yorker. You know, I was doing reporting in Chengdu at the beginning of the pandemic, and he, you know, I was talking to this guy who was selling shoes in the American market on Amazon, and he talked about how when the stimulus checks went out,
1: <laughs> he was, noticed a spike. That you know? was great.
0: And it was like, wow. And so when I, went, after that, I was like, okay, I'm not going to put him in this story. I want to wait and see how this turns out. Um, but the flexibility of somebody like that was amazing because at that time, he told me, he's like, you know, the American market is going to be dead. They're not handling the pandemic well. And we're going to turn to the Chinese market. It made sense at the time. You know, this was like in uh, April, I think it was, 2020. Um, but then I go back and talk to him like a month and a half later. He's like, nope, the numbers don't say that. And we're bailing on that. But even America is going to be, or Mark, you know, it's going to be even bigger. But you could see him just kind of in real time making these really big brave changes to because he started this whole other operation and then he abandoned it you know um and that's kind of what it takes i think to you know to be an entrepreneur there it's incredibly competitive
1: we should talk about your time in Chengdu, right, uh, and uh, how you ended up there. Jeremy, do you want
2: to? Yeah, uh, you know, this is the question, I guess, uh, the million-dollar question in some ways that uh, many people in the community observing China are eager to know. Can you? What, what can you tell us about the circumstances surrounding your somewhat untimely departure from, from Chengdu?
0: Yeah, I mean, I should probably talk a little bit about why we went there. I mean, we so, so we went there in 2019, as I mentioned. I was interested in in being in the same region, I was interested in teaching again after 20 years. I actually was not interested in writing um, in that I had, you know, I've been, I started writing with The New Yorker in 2020. It's demanding to sort of be, you know, I've never had a salary basically during that time. You're just writing, going from piece to piece. And, you know, I was a little, I wanted a little bit of space actually. Um, I also feel like journalism, sometimes you can be just always the observer and always at a distance. And it's nice to sometimes be connected to an institution and to have, you know, especially as a foreign correspondent, I think you can lose that. And I felt like it might be good to be part of a university community and to have students again. And so, actually, my plan was not to write, um, I was just going to teach. And because of that, I signed on for. Pr- pr- fairly heavy load. I was teaching a couple sections of freshman composition, um, which is not usually what established writers want to teach, but I felt like I would get to know the freshmen, and it'd be interesting to see these guys come right out of, you know, and right out of the and what are they like. Um, And then I taught a class on journalism, nonfiction writing, and I sort of expanded the enrollment of that class uh, so that I could take kids from all over the university, and which again mm-hmm. I had more than 30 students. You never want to do that in an intensive writing class. But I, wow. but my part, you know, I wanted to learn what it was like, and so th- this was really what I was focus on. So that was the plan. I was going to teach for one or two years and then transition to a journalist.
2: So masochism, midlife crisis, kind of. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, No, it was about that cohort longitudinal study that he's doing. Yeah, no, I was going
0: to, and I wanted to to visit my fooling students at the same time. Um, So that was the plan. Um, And then it changed. I mean, the first thing that happened actually was that the Peace Corps left very suddenly um, at the beginning of 2020 um I and that of course was based in Chengdu and I had a, such a history with the organization I felt like I should write something about that that was the first piece I did for the New Yorker um and then the pandemic hit and at that point I realized that I should probably do whatever writing I could do you know.
1: but the, you know that piece wasn't a reported piece really I mean it, it didn't raise eyebrows uh what ended up you know sort of Attracting the attention because you went and you, you did reporting from Wuhan. You actually uh and you traveled around quite a bit. You know you we went back to Fuling and you went to Wuhan and uh, so did some fantastic stories. It's it's interesting though the one that really seemed to get under the skin of a lot of Western observers and I'm sure you were aware of the kerfuffle around it was this story that I thought was fantastic about uh, how China handled. There were a couple of them about how China handled the COVID-19 pandemic. Can you talk a little bit about how the reaction was to that and how how that made you feel?
0: Well, I did did two stories early on about the... The first one was about what it was like to be under lockdown. Um, And I did that very quickly because it was just starting to happen in the U.S. That came out like at the end of March. And it was just when it was starting to hit here. And I wrote about our family's experiences in Chengdu. And kind of the early stage, I wrote about Um, You know, what had happened in Wuhan, I was in, I hadn't visited Wuhan, of course, at that time you couldn't go there, but I was in correspondence with a medical worker and I I, I quoted from our, our, our correspondence. And I wrote also about the pressure on school children, which I could tell even at that early point, I have two kids but I could also hearing from my fooling students that there were a lot of problems with remote education. And I you know, I documented a suicide in fooling in that story. There was a kid in, in fooling who, who killed himself, and there were quite a few of those. They were not being reported in the Chinese press. That story actually got some negative reaction in China. Right so, right. so a number of nationalists, sort of online folks, were unhappy about that. The next story, though, was months later when I wrote about, so how did they turn this around? What was the strategy? What was China doing? Um, to control us, because pretty soon you could tell that what they had done had really worked. Um, and that kind of angered the other side, um, because I was, you know, supposedly praising China. But I mean, I don't know how else you could look at this. Um, and China is an amazing example that I think is still sort of underappreciated. And, and this is sort of separate from whatever you feel about the party or anything. Um, it's the only large country that really handled the, the virus to the point of, of, of you know, zero COVID. Um, it's also the only country that really screwed up badly early and then turned it totally around. Um, those are both really interesting things to me. I mean, that's – and I feel like you have to document that, right? And, and that doesn't mean that I'm happy with what they're doing in Xinjiang or any place else. But this was an important story. And at that time, I, when I wrote that story, really a lot of sensi- – my sensitivity was I don't want – you know, there is sometimes a tendency when you write about China to feel like – you know, you have to undercut everything. You, you know, everything has to have a certain amount of criticism.
2: Um, if that's kind of what I want to ask exactly is how, you know, what is your obligation to explain what's going on? I've got Geng a lot of obligation, yeah. In every piece. Uh, you don't you need to recite that
1: litany. That
2: story though, I also have
0: an obligation that, you know, my home country where the people are reading this has 100,000 deaths at that point. They're doing everything wrong. Um, they need to hear about what happens if you do it right. And I was concerned about that. I don't want to, you know, to engage in whataboutism, right? Which is like, okay, maybe this looks like they're doing well, um, but what about this other thing that's going on? And I, don't want, I, I felt like Americans had become very complacent and they just didn't understand what, what needed to be done. You know? And so I was really concerned about that. And that wasn't something that the people criticizing this you know, took into account, and of course, the next story I did was about Wuhan, which was something that didn't make the nationalists happy, right? So, no matter what you did at this point, somebody's going to be unhappy. But my obligation as a writer, I feel like, for that the, the unique nature of China's situation, the way they turn this around, it's really important to document that. Um, that's my obligation.
1: Peter Hessler, what about your what aboutism? Right? <laughs>
2: <laughs> so uh, we, we've only got, I think, two minutes left, and you kind of cunningly avoided answering my question about why you left Chengdu. Are oh, you no. able to say anything? No, 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 no I didn't avoid Yeah, we just got... I just got I just oh, it was us. We're sorry. We, 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 we took you down. Yeah, outside.
0: yeah, No, 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 no. Um, yeah, so I wanted to stay, um, you know, I, I, and I, uh, I offered, I think, three different times to continue my contract there. Um, you know, the reasons were never that clear, um, and even at, at one point, somebody said, well, we can't do short-term contracts on a regular, you know, over a period of time. And I said, well, I'm willing to do a long-term contract um, if that's the problem and even teach more classes. Um, and that was also rejected. And I, I, so there was really no negotiation. I was never told if you do A, B, or C, then we're interested. There was no interest at all. I had, you know, I had heard over the whole last year periodically that there was unhappiness at various parts of the university with my writing. This was never communicated directly. Nobody ever sat down and said, you can't, we don't want you to do this, or you shouldn't write about this, or you know, that was never part of it. Uh, I just would hear things. Um, And I knew, you know, anybody who's been in China knows that this is potentially gonna be a problem. As I said, it wasn't my intention in going there to work as this kind of correspondent. The situation I felt demanded it. I thought this is a diplomatic crisis. All of our journalists have been kicked out almost. Um, This is a global health crisis. Um, If I can do something to cover this, I should do that. And if that involves a risk of expulsion, I was fine with that. Um, That didn't, you know, that didn't uh, concern me. But it was not a, it was not like the journalist expulsions. There was, I'm almost certain of this, there was not any kind of top-down command, get this guy out. When you have this kind of situation like in China, the political climate, some things are black and white. They come from clear directives, but there's a lot of gray area. And the gray area is often a general environment has been set and people lower down the chain make decisions to be safe and to try to preempt future problems. And that, I believe, was my situation.
2: Preemptive, what do you call it? Preemptive butt covering. <laughs> yeah. Something like that. CIA. Yeah. Right. Right.
1: <laughs> right. I mean, I imagine it was a pretty local decision then. It came from the university administration. Yeah. I, you know,
0: I, I can't say too right, much more right. about that. But but basically, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a surprise to anybody. It wasn't a shock to us. It was a disappointment. Um, But, you know, we knew this was the risk. And Leslie and I had had long conversations about this to the point where my daughters at one point were like when do we not when do we find out if daddy's going to get kicked out um, <laughs> which is not what you want your 10 year old talking about and i think mostly because they want to wonder if we'd make it back for ski
1: season in colorado um. well, I mean, uh, my, my kids asked about you know when's daddy going to get kicked out of the house right? anyway <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much i mean we're, we are out of time we normally do recommendations at the end of the show but uh, unfortunately we do not have time this time but uh, I want to thank Peter, and I want to thank everybody else for, uh, for showing up. And um, we will uh, see you, you know, listen to our show next week. So thanks, everyone, and uh, enjoy the rest of the conference. Jeremy, thank you. Thank you, Peter. Yeah. Thank you, guys. The Zinica Podcast no, is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Zinica Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Tell us how we're doing. Or just as good, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This really does help people to discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at SubChina News. And make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thank you very much for listening. We will see you next week. Take care.